0: It's the DKB Radio Hour. I'm Spencer Cannon. This episode is brought to you by an educational grant from Gilead Sciences Incorporated and is accredited by the Postgraduate Institute for Medicine. Welcome to Part 2 of our series on the diagnosis, prevention, and treatment of HIV. In Part 1, we talked with experts about the link between HIV and substance abuse. Drs. Treisman and Brady Speaking from the 2017 American Society of Addiction Medicine, or ASAM conference in New Orleans, highlighted the importance of screening and early diagnosis in high-risk patients. We also discussed PrEP, a new tool to help prevent HIV infection in some people with high-risk behaviors. In Part 2, we will discuss approaches to the treatment of HIV infection. Novel agents and regimens continue to be developed. These new therapies have changed HIV infection from a death sentence to a manageable chronic disease for most patients. But successful treatment depends on close collaboration between addiction specialists and other healthcare providers to promote patient adherence and minimize risk for adverse events. On our show today, bringing the science of HIV treatment to the addiction medicine setting. To receive CME or CEU credit, visit www.starthiv.dkbmed.com. Although HIV infection cannot yet be cured, most people who are infected with the virus and receive appropriate medical care can now expect to live many, many years. Getting there can be challenging for some patients, especially those with a history of substance abuse. To illustrate some of these challenges, we turn to Dr. Treisman, In part one of this series, Dr. Treisman introduced Jason, a young man with a history of opioid addiction. From ASAM, Dr. Treisman continues
1: Jason's story. Jason was, when we last saw him, off to medical school. Finished medical school, did very well. But while in medical school, he met the girl, the one. He was several years older than the other student, and in his second year of medical school, he met a girl, we'll call her Alice, who he thought was the perfect girl. And he got serious about her. And as he was getting serious about her, he went to the doctor and said, I wanna be tested for everything. I did inject some drugs, and I wanna make sure that there isn't anything I have to worry about. Also, I had many sex partners as an undergraduate. I always use safe sex, but I wanna make sure. And he was shocked to find out that he was HIV infected. He was mortified by this and it really shook his world up. He went to see his doctor, he talked about various options. He got on HIV therapy and his HIV therapy contained a drug called efavirenz. And on efavirenz, he got quite depressed. He also was terrified that he had given his girlfriend HIV. Now he had been using condoms with her because, as he described it, he always used condoms because he didn't want anybody pregnant and he didn't want anybody to say that he'd gotten them pregnant and have trouble. And So he was in a habit of using condoms and always had. But here he was HIV infected. He immediately went and told his girlfriend with the help of his doctor and she got tested and she was negative. This was a relief. He was also negative for hepatitis C. So he was very frightened about passing his HIV onto his girlfriend, very frightened about how he was going to live with HIV and it didn't help that he got quite depressed, came much more negative about things. Luckily, his doctor recognized his depression and helped him change medication so that his depression got better. But he was worried about Alice getting infected. He didn't want to have sex with her and get her infected. They were going to continue to use condoms. And he decided that He would get PrEP for her, and she talked about PrEP with the doctors, and uh, she decided that a reasonable thing would be for her to go on PrEP, even though he was undetectable. So he remained undetectable, and she got PrEP. Now, one of the interesting things was that he expected her to leave him, and she was very responsive to his being honest with her, being concerned about her, and quite remarkably, it probably really improved their relationship rather than hurting it. She knew quite a bit about HIV by the end of the conversation, knew that he would probably have a normal lifespan, and knew that he could take care of himself and be healthy, and also that they could have kids, they could have a normal life together. And so she was very enthusiastic about the fact that he'd been honest with her immediately, that he'd tried to protect her from getting HIV, and that he'd used condoms, but also that he was taking his medicines and undetectable. So their relationship continued, and actually, they continued to thrive.
0: Like many people who share needles, Jason became infected with HIV, but he only discovered his condition years later after he had successfully quit using opioids. Fortunately, Jason had always used safe sexual practices. If he had not, he could have contributed to the spread of HIV. His story highlights the importance of screening patients with risk factors for HIV, including people who use injection drugs. Once he was diagnosed, Jason started a guideline-directed therapy, which had some side effects that required a change in therapy. Side effects are one of the key issues in the management of HIV. To tell us more about current issues in HIV care, we return to Dr. Treisman from the ASAM stage.
1: I wanted to spend a few minutes talking about the problems that we face in the HIV epidemic, both as substance use doctors and as physicians in general, currently, the best result we can achieve with HIV is an undetectable viral load, unlike hepatitis C, where we can actually cure the virus. So with hepatitis C, 12 weeks of therapy, and you're cured, and you don't have the viral infection at all anymore. With HIV, although we can make people undetectable, even after several years of treatment, if you stop the meds, the virus comes right back. and so. Right now, this is a lifelong treatment. We have to give three drugs from two to three classes of drugs. And although there's conversation about whether people could get by on two drugs now because the drugs are so potent, we're still using three drugs. Non-compliance with HIV medications leads to antiviral resistance, and there are people around who are resistant to a lot of the drugs that we have now. Some of them are very difficult to treat. Either they were infected very early on or they've had lots of non-compliance. There are lots of new formulations with one pill once a day, which is very exciting. One pill once a day therapy means people don't have the burden they had even a few years ago. Even with
0: viral resistance, sometimes caused by poor adherence to HIV medications, treatment is still possible. And new formulations make it easier for people to adhere to treatment. But getting them into care in the first place can still be a challenge.
1: This next conversation is about the spectrum of engagement in HIV care. This study looked at the patients who are nationally infected in the U.S. and then looked at how many people are diagnosed, linked into care, retained in care, need antiviral therapy, are on antiviral therapy, and are adherent or undetectable. And as you can see, when this study was done quite a few years ago, in 2011, there were a lot of patients who were infected and only a modest number who were adherent and undetectable. We're certainly doing better than this than we were in 2011. There's still a huge number of patients that need to be identified, linked into care, and treated. And we're not adequately keeping people in care. And this process requires more and more connection to the patients. And part of the issue is that our patients have inadequate resources underserved areas and underserved populations, engaging people in care is difficult. The goal of HIV treatment is
0: an undetectable viral load. This is not the same as cure, as in the management of hepatitis C, but it can keep patients healthy and prevent transmission of HIV to others. The good news is that there are new regimens that combine multiple recommended drugs into a single pill that can be taken once a day. But as Dr. Treisman noted, Patients have to be engaged in care for treatment to work. And engagement can be a hurdle in the addiction medicine setting. To better understand these issues, we called Dr. Kathleen Brady and asked how to foster engagement and adherence in patients with HIV.
2: You know, medication adherence is really a multifaceted construct. Some of the factors that influence medication adherence are things that are within the patient, things that are characteristics of the patient. But there are also external and environmental things that can influence medication adherence. In terms of what are those environmental factors, certainly the more you can simplify the regimen, the less number of pills per day or the more simple you can make, you know, if you tie their medication taking to a meal or some other event so that it becomes very automatic. It's also really important to talk to patients about why they are taking these medications and how the medication should help and listen to any concerns they might have about taking the medications. Also, to address side effects very aggressively, ask about them and do whatever you can to address those side effects. But there are other things, in particular, when we talk about HIV treatment, and that is addictions and depression and cognitive impairment all of which can interfere with medication adherence. But all of these things can be addressed to some extent. And then finally, addiction in and of itself can interfere with compliance or adherence to medications. There's a number of reasons for this. For one, addictions interfere with people's cognitive processes and memory, particularly when people are actively using. And when people are in the throes of addictions, they sometimes reorder their priorities so that nothing is more important to them than their drug of abuse. So it's really important if adherence becomes an issue with patients, somebody with a history of addiction, you want to have an ongoing assessment of their substance use with urine drug screens and just asking them. You want to have collaborative arrangements. Addictions are chronic and relapsing illnesses, so people need to be in treatment. Maybe it's not very intensive treatment if they've been in recovery for a while, but they still should be in touch with a recovery-related group or a counselor. So helping patients find and initiate substance use treatment can be one of the most important things you can do in helping to treat an individual who has an addiction and is on HIV medications.
0: As Dr. Brady emphasized, no clinician can do this alone. Maintaining adherence to HIV therapies for patients who are addicted requires close and ongoing collaboration between addiction specialists HIV clinicians, other health and support services, and of course your clients with shared decision making. Here's Dr. Treisman again to discuss the importance of collaborative care for patients with HIV and addiction.
1: I just wanted to mention collaborative treatment. We need to include mental health, hep C and HIV, and general health care in substance abuse programs and vice versa so that we can have better outcomes. Collaborative care is critical to better outcomes, and everybody who studied this has shown that including opiate substitution therapy and HIV care, better outcome, including HIV care and opiate substitution care, better outcomes. And no matter how you do it, when you integrate care or then disintegrate care, you have better outcomes.
0: We now have some perspective on the approach to managing HIV in people with addictions. And this approach emphasizes collaboration between multiple disciplines to treat addiction comorbid mental illnesses, and HIV itself. What we haven't yet discussed are the currently available treatments for HIV, how they work, and what's recommended. We call Dr. Richard Moore, professor of medicine at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, to help us understand how available therapies affect HIV.
3: Thank you. The way that available therapies work is by inhibiting certain steps in the HIV life cycle, and there are multiple steps in this life cycle. Our most commonly used drugs that are the backbone of most of our therapies, and are actually the initial drugs developed, are called reverse transcriptase inhibitors, and they inhibit that particular step in the life cycle, the reverse transcriptase that creates the DNA from the viral RNA. And we also have other types of drugs that inhibit other parts of the life cycle, including protease inhibitors, integrase inhibitors, and various entry inhibitors. And there's a mixture of those. There are fusion inhibitors, co-receptor inhibitors, and others such as CD4 and GP120 inhibitors. And most of these drugs are used currently for treatment of HIV. One of the things that we learned very early was that a single drug does not work well. It will suppress virus for a short period of time, but because of the very rapid mutation that occurs in this virus daily, there is a quasi-species of virus that will occur sometimes within hours, sometimes within days, that will render a single drug ineffective. So we have learned that we require multiple drugs to be given together to suppress the virus. Currently, that is three drugs, almost always, including reverse transcriptase inhibitors with an additional drug, which might be a protease inhibitor, might be an integrase inhibitor, for example. And what we have learned is that it's very unlikely for a virus to develop mutation to all three drugs simultaneously, single virus quasi-species. And that is why the combination or multiple drug therapy works.
0: Dr. Moore described how therapy using a backbone of nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitors, plus another highly effective drug, such as an integrase or protease inhibitor, can successfully inhibit HIV replication. Now Dr. Treisman will tell us which of these agents and combinations are recommended for the treatment of HIV in current guidelines.
1: Current treatment recommendations are two nucleosides, two nukes, reverse transcriptase inhibitors, as a backbone, and then a third highly effective drug. These guidelines are the NIH guidelines. So what we have here is tenofovir and FTC in a fixed-dose combination, tenofovir alfenamide, TAF, and FTC, and then a abacavir lamivudine, which is only used for certain patients but is a very effective combination as well. And then the third highly effective drug is usually an integrase inhibitor, but can still be a protease inhibitor. Now, these are the recommended first-line regimens. However, there are lots of other regimens. There are lots of people on other regimens, and the other drugs are still very, very vital and widely used. But if somebody rolls in now, it's as simple as this, these NIH guidelines, to start people off.
0: Dr. Treisman mentioned TAF, a relatively new agent now included in guidelines. TAF is tenofovir alafenamide, which is a new way of delivering the widely used HIV drug tenofovir disoproxil fumarate, also known as TDF. We return to Dr. Moore, who tells us more about this new agent and why guidelines are moving away from TDF and toward TAF.
3: Tenofovir alafenamide fumarate, or TAF, is a prodrug. Of a nofivir preparation that we were previously using called TDF. And this prodrug allows for similar antiviral efficacy with much smaller doses than the previous TDF and less adverse effects on the kidneys and bones. So we're able to give it with less toxicity. It's actually tolerated better and at lower doses and that has caused it to be a very attractive drug to be used in combination therapy for the treatment of HIV. Currently, it is only approved for treatment of HIV. It is not currently available for PrEP, for example, as there are still questions about whether there are adequate tissue levels for that purpose. There is a clinical trial going on studying this, but the answers are not yet in
0: So TEF is another step in the evolution toward more tolerable and more effective regimens. Another major step along this path was the development of one-pill, once-a-day regimens that contain recommended combinations of agents. There are now several of these once-daily regimens available in the US, and they are an important component of our efforts to minimize the burden of treatment and maximize adherence. Remember that a high level of adherence to antiretroviral therapy is essential to minimize viral load and prevent the development of viral resistance. What else helps? Treatments with fewer side effects, less complex monitoring, and the prevention or management of comorbidities. In short, the simpler the regimen and the healthier and happier the patient and your client are, the better the chances that they'll be successful in achieving and maintaining their treatment goals. Before we close, let's return to Dr. Treisman and his patient Jason to see what challenges he encountered and how he
1: overcame them. So Jason had switched to a less depressive regimen. His reaction to a Favren's with a depressive result had gone away. He was doing very well and was sailing along. But he suddenly found out that he had to have a surgery, and the surgery was a cyst removal. It wasn't going to be huge, but it could get into his peritoneum, and he was quite worried about pain, but also quite worried about opiates. He and his girlfriend went to the doctor. He told her that if he were given Oxy, it would be dangerous. His doctor talked to him about opiates and careful monitoring. He agreed to have urine toxicology screens, and he agreed that when he had his surgery, if he absolutely needed opiates, he would have it only in the hospital and would stay in the hospital until he could get off opiates. His physician was understanding about this, talked to the surgeon. Surgeon was understanding about it as well. They talked about Ketorolac, an injectable nonsteroidal anti-inflammatory, which for some people is perfectly adequate for surgery, even fairly substantial surgery, but also talked about the fact that if you got re-exposed to opiates, he would have a fairly substantial risk of relapse and that probably for some time after the surgery, it'd be a good idea for him to be monitored and for him to give urines. So they continued in medical school, he had his surgery, it was uneventful. They went on to do their residencies together, they coupled, matched, and were married eventually, and are doing A-OK. I'm still in touch with Jason, although I don't see him regularly because he lives in another city. He has come back once to visit and he and his wife now are doing great. Jason's story demonstrates how
0: opioid addiction and HIV infection can change a patient's life. In the end, effective management of his addiction and HIV infection helped Jason achieve his goals, both in terms of his health and having a normal life. His story shows us what is possible for patients with addiction and HIV. In closing, we turn once more to Dr. Treisman, who leaves
1: us some key messages from our program and one tantalizing possibility. There is one known HIV cure, the famous Berlin Place patient, 40 year old patient with HIV who developed acute myelogenous leukemia. He got a bone marrow transplant with a CCR5 Delta 32 mutant and then relapsed and had to have a second one. And after two bone marrow transplants, he seems to be cured of HIV and has been cured for many years now. This is a very exciting development because it proves that HIV can be cured. Bone marrow transplant is not a reasonable risk and benefit as a treatment, but trying to find ways to do the equivalent thing to patients is very exciting, and there are numerous cure investigations currently going on, and we're waiting to see the results of some of them, but certainly some of the studies are very exciting. Takeaways for today are there are numerous highly effective low side effect one pill once a day regimens for HIV, and it's become a chronic disease, and transmission is preventable. We should be testing our patients for HIV and hepatitis C in the substance use world, and we should be getting them into treatment. And then lastly, and the thing I think that's most important is this, collaborative treatment of HIV is the best outcome. You have to treat the comorbidities, the medical comorbidities of HIV. You have to treat the psychiatric comorbidities of HIV, and you have to treat the substance use comorbidities of HIV. As well, you have to treat HIV as a comorbidity of substance use and psychiatric disorders, which means if you can get all three providers in the same clinic at the same time, you do much better. If you can't do that, if you're in an environment where you can't do that, one of the questions people always ask is, what can I do? Well, you can develop a virtual version of that. You can make collaborative relationships with people in other treatment programs around your area. So HIV providers can collaborate with substance use providers, can collaborate with mental health providers, and you can improve the outcome for patients by being able to shuttle them back and forth between people who are working together to try to get the patient better. That seems to have the best outcomes. So although I want you all to fight and press for more integrated treatment and less disintegrated treatment, get rid of carve-outs, put mental health and substance abuse treatment back into the general clinic, I also want you to be able to work with what we have realistically right now, which is to create virtual versions of collaborative care.
0: We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the DKB Radio Hour. Please join us for future episodes of the Radio Hour when we discuss HIV and other topics. To receive CME or CEU credit, take the post-test at www.starthiv.dkbmed.com. I'm host Spencer Cannon, thanking you for your time.